0: Hey everyone, Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to a returning guest Mark Kukazella, all about the importance of zone two training for health and performance. We talk about what zone two training is and why it's not just the domain of the athlete and how it works to increase fatty acid uptake and improve metabolic flexibility, saving someone from an energy crisis that can occur when they are unable to burn fat. And of course, we talk through the reasons why this is so important in terms of metabolic health and is under-recognized with that regard. We also have a good discussion in and around what we see with former athletes and their start-stop approach to getting back into their training sport and how their approach isn't necessarily the best way to do it, going balls to the wall, and where walking could actually really help them. Anyway, we also discuss the benefits from an athlete perspective and how a current athlete can determine if they need more Zone 2 training. We touch on the athlete heart and the latest updates around what is known with regards to cardiovascular disease risk. Now, as I said, Mark has been on the show before. He was on episode 23, and we will put a link in the show notes to that podcast so you get more of an idea of Mark and the work that he does on a day-to-day basis. But Mark Kukazala is a professor at West Virginia University School of Medicine. As a U.S. Air Force reservist, he designs programs to, prom- to promote healthier and better running with the U.S. Air Force Efficient Running project. Mark has presented running workshops on over 50 military bases and has been a national level Masters runner, having competed for over 35 years with more than 100 marathon and ultra marathon finishes under his belt. Mark is a two-time winner of the Air Force Marathon and has a marathon PR of 2.24. As well as being the race director for Freedom's Run Race Series in West Virginia, Mark is a director of the Natural Running Center, an education portal designed to teach healthier running. He is also the owner of Two Rivers Treads, a center for natural running and walking in his hometown of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Mark's innovative work and story has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, Outside Magazine, Running Times, Runners World, Air Force Times, The Washington Post, JAMA, and other medical and media outlets. And he was one of the speakers at Low Carb Denver, where I just attended. And it was a brilliant talk, which made me want to jump on the call and chat to Mark all about that presentation. So you can contact Mark over at drmarksdesk.com. And we've got links to articles and presentations. So Mark has provided a Dropbox that has a range of different papers and presentations that are on this topic that we're discussing today and links to a couple of the other papers that Mark and I discuss in the interview. I think you're really going to love this one. So... Just a reminder, the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people can get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show, like Mark. All right, team, please enjoy this interview I have with Mark Okazala.
1: How's it, how is your running right now, Mark? Is it I'm kind of like it's just the mental therapy. Okay. <laughs> so I haven't done any. I'll, I'll, I've signed up for a fall marathon, so maybe I'll oh, try nice. to get some leg speed back.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it it's, been
1: a, it's been a very busy few a very yes. maintaining health a just maintaining health.
0: Oh, uh, little this this a little bit this is, this is
1: this why... little bit kind of a little bit of a of a have of a little a step stool. It, a, a sand dune runner. a a Okay. Have you seen this? It's, no, And no. you can actually, like, run inside on it. It's like a, like, look up sand dune runner. This thing will crush you, like, yeah. not in a bad way, but, like, if, if the weather's, like, horrible, you can just, like, step on the sand dune runner, you know, just, while you're on a call. Oh, shoot. Is it like a stick yeah. machine, like
0: those old-school yeah, stick machines? Yeah, but it's
1: like it, your feet totally work, and it's not yeah. like a machine. It's just this little
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. and
1: you saw it. I, I mean, yeah. this is what it is, right?
0: Yeah, all oh, that is a, crazy. You know, a little
1: ball for feet. <laughs> I have all the widgets. <laughs> Got kettlebells back here. You know, not, I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing crazy, but just stuff that, like, if
0: you're stand,
1: like, you know, kind of what we talked about at the conference, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah.
0: I, what yeah. I want to buy is a walking pad to go underneath my standing desk.
1: Well, that's what that kind of is. Like you yes. could stand, you could just, you know, you're you're just restless, right? You would just yeah. kind of march in place on it. Yeah. And it'd be like quicksand.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sand, yeah. sand
1: dune stepper. I don't know if stand they... Sand stepper. I
0: wonder if we'll get... I'll, I'll Google that later. So I wonder yeah, if we've yeah, actually Google got it. that available. It's yeah, Google yeah. they Interesting.
1: I think they're made in the States, but they probably I don't know if they distribute... In Australia, okay, they I'm probably would send you one as a podcaster. They would send you one.
0: Especially <laughs> if we
1: talk. We'll talk about it here. Say, Mark, what do you have around your desk? And yeah. Then, you know, You'll be like, oh <laughs> this is a little product placement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, Mark, it's great to see you at Low Carb Denver. And I wanted to get you to come back onto the show to sort of talk specifically about zone two training and not necessarily just for athletes, but I absolutely want to cover the, you know, the, uh, the applicability of it, obviously to the athletic population, but, but also gen pop, because I, during that Sunday session, there was just a really good discussion as to how important that aerobic based training is for people who wouldn't even ever use the word training. So I felt like that was like a really, you know, a, a good thing that we could dive into. And of, and of course. We've talked about your introduction to low carb on the podcast before when you came on. And and for those listening, I will link to our previous um, episode, which you were one of the first people actually that I interviewed. So um, that was a real treat. Um, however, can you give us a brief 101 as to your introduction to low carb? because. I always enjoy hearing people's sort of origin stories and you've got a particularly sort of interesting one given your background as a physician and and things like that. So how did you change your metabolism basically is sort of the question.
1: Yeah, well, it was so wonderful to meet you in Denver, Mickey. When I when I saw you, I was like, oh wow, <laughs> you know. I, well, I think I heard your voice. I, I know that voice because I've listened to your show so many times and been on your show, but I, you know, I'd never never seen you. And, and I was like, oh my gosh, you made that trip. That was a long trip, but it was it was a wonderful weekend just listening to so many people and just interacting. You know, outside of the conference, you know, at meals and breaks. Just yeah, it was so fun. You know, you you go to yeah. learn. And you know i I take away a lot from these conferences and relationships, but yeah, my you know gosh I think I think I spoke at maybe not the first one, the second low carb it was Breckenridge or vale, I forget what it was, you know, so going way back but but my adoption into low carb probably like everybody, there's like some sideways story, you know I was a like like you, I was a runner, right, it's so, a distance runner my whole life, and we all ate tons of carbohydrates and and that's kind of ha- how we rolled and I was in the military service and my labs came up like really close to fully diabetic. And um, that was kind of odd because, you know, I was lean and running and didn't look like a a type two diabetic at, at the time. And I was a physician and we were mandated to get lab work. I don't think I ever would have had lab work unless I was mandated because that's our requirement. You know, you go every year, you've got to get your basic labs just to make sure you're deployable. And uh, so I think it was like my A1C was 6'3". Um, and, and you know, for probably the two or three years before that, and I just thought it was normal. I was waking up at like two in the morning every morning needing to eat. And I was eating right before bed and just constantly eating. And and it was losing weight. I was actually like, you know, I was probably eating, you know, maybe eight, I don't know, hard to imagine how many calories I, I was eating. And I thought it was just because I was running. But then, you know, the, the, GP you know looked looked at me and they said this is kind of odd that this you know the lean guys diabetic and sent me over to the endocrin clinic and um I was a family doc, fully trained, and I, I never had ordered a C-peptide on a patient. I had to go look up what that was, you know, because, I mean, it was I said, I knew it had something to do with insulin. You know, here I'm at a full doctor and uh, telling people to, you know, eat less and exercise more to lose weight and all this stuff that we know now is from your show and is, there's way more to the story. But my, my C-peptide came up at like 0.3, which is making just a little like marginal amount of insulin to not be on insulin, but I was so massively insulin sensitive that that little bit of insulin and what was called a second phase insulin response would kick in and crash my sugar. You know, so they put a CGM on me for a few days. And uh, like, and then you could actually see what was happening, you know, so I I would eat, you know, a standard meal for me, which would be like pasta, (laughs) and it would go up to like 250. But then like two hours later, it would crash hard like that, like, but that's when I was like hangry all the time. And, uh, but kind of paradoxically, at the time, I was doing a project for the Air Force on the fitness test. And trying to figure out like why are these people not passing the fitness test and you know got into a lot of like we didn't call it zone two training then it was just called like to aerobic base you know so so it was yeah it was just like okay it's not a lack of speed it's it's a lack of endurance we didn't have all these technical mitochondrial functioning terms at, at that point yeah so i realized Pretty quick in that project, that the reason people were not passing the fitness test wasn't because they were not exercising. They all exercised. It was because of obesity. You know, the uh, weight was up. Mickey, their odds of passing the test went down. You know, probably multiple things to that. Yeah, you know, carrying more mass, but if your mitochondria don't work, there probably isn't good either. And I, I'd come across Gary Taubes' work. You know, <laughs> so it just pretty turned everything upside down you know and I was like hmm, this is curious so I was at that that year that I was I was diagnosed as a as a moti we would call it maturity onset diabetes of youth or lata you know a latent type 1 you know I had already kind of done the legwork that low carb diets are safe and effective because I was traveling to all these military bases giving seminars on how to pass the fitness test and I'd be in a base gym with like 100 airmen and none of them wanted to be there (laughs) because they were all the folks having difficulty with the fitness test. And I was asking this question, you know, has anyone, you know, here lost 50 pounds and kept it off for a year? You know, maybe one person was reluctantly raised their hand and, you know, I'd say, you know, Airman Smith, what did you do? And no matter what base I was I was going to and speaking to, it was always some version of low carb. They'd say, "Well, you know, I'm doing Paleo, or I gave up all the sugar, I gave up all the bread," or you know, maybe a more courageous one because I was a doctor would actually say, "You know, under <coughs> doing the Atkins," you know. But they're they thought I was going to yeah. yell at them. But yeah, so so I knew the science of low carbohydrate and what that was 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 actually safe and effective. So you know, I, in two days, turned the food pyramid upside down. And uh, I was like, wow, like the, the most uh, immediate thing was, I felt good, right? Like I didn't need to wake up at two in the morning to eat a bowl. I was eating bowls of cereal at two in the morning. I mean, waking up and eating right before bed, you know, eating before my runs, you know, I would be the, you know, the doctor in the lounge hoarding bagels, you know because it was kind of like you you needed them because you were having these hypos so like just immediate just stability and i could eat three meals a day like wow like you know (laughs) like (laughs) eat three meals a day and not like snack at night wake up in the like like it was it was just wow like my life changed and you know i started checking my sugars and you know it all kind of came back not perfect but in you know, in a range to to keep me eligible for military service.
0: And Mike, do you think as an athlete, and I wonder about this when I talk to athletes, whether sometimes almost like the number of miles that you log is a bit of a badge of honor. So this is where people get into that kind of like junk miles, like, oh yeah, I did 120 miles last week because I'm awesome. I often wonder whether the amount that someone needs to eat is also a badge of honor. Like the amount that they can eat without gaining weight is quite a... um. It's unusual, you know. It's like, like I'm so good that I have to eat all of the time. And look at me, I'm not gaining any weight. Like, like I wonder how much of how many people might have the experience that you've just described, but they don't look at it as a um, as an issue per se. But it's more like, wow, I must be training so hard that I'm just burning through all this energy.
1: Yeah, we did actually in college. We did. I ran in college at University of Virginia. We had a dining hall for. Folks that were on athletic teams and you know you football players be there and they'd be three times the size of the cross-country <laughs> runners literally right so like you know we would be a, you know a buck 30 100 you know 30 140 pounds and the football guys were in kilos you know they were 150 kilos we may have been you know 65 to 70 kilos maybe so but we you know we'd sit down and you know you'd share tables with these guys and we would eat like more yeah. than them and they'd look at us and they're like where are you guys but you would it would be kind of like like the You know, maybe the humble brag thing (laughs) where, you know, you'd sit there and eat all this food, you know, and you'd like out eat the football guy and, you know, who three times (laughs) your size. So so I think there was a little bit of that challenge eating where, but then we were like 18 to 20 at that (laughs) time. So I think any 18 to 20 or all this mess, anyone who's doing sport you know it's massively insulin sensitive
0: 100 percent, and it's interesting so you and that's the thing with you it's not that you had lost your insulin sensitivity but you just had some
1: i stopped making insulin i had a little second phase response so i would have these highs and then these crashes but i was losing weight so I was clearly insulin insufficient for for what i needed to be to maintain body mass and muscle
0: Mark, had you not sort of went gone low carb, would what would have been the sort of medical outcome of that? Like, what was your what was the progression for yeah, that? Yeah, it's
1: you know because I was a doc, so you could kind of self treat <laughs> in a way. You know, you check your sugars, and if it's all okay, you know, you don't need. But if I had not read anything, you know, or known anything, you know, which the Air Force project and dealing with the fitness test got me to really read. You know, I, I would have been biased that oh gosh, you know, like like eating a, a high protein, high fat diet, low carb causes a heart attack. Yeah. I mean, my my father had bypass at 35, so I immediately oh, wow. would have been, well, I I probably need to be medicated. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to change my diet. You know, I'm eating a healthy diet because I'm eating all these whole grains, low fat, you know, skim milk and on the cereal. You know, so I'll cover it with insulin. You know, but but that's clearly what I I would have done. But I I think it would have probably not ended up well because if you're massively insulin sensitive, and even you throw some long acting insulin in, your risk of lows. I mean, you'd be chasing it all day. I mean, it would just. But yeah, so it it was very liberating to take ownership. But fortunately, you know, the glucose meters, and then maybe four or five years ago, CGMs became easy and accessible so then started using cgms and and then you don't have to check your sugars three or four times a day so so they were and you know i, I think I, you know my myself and my patients were very early adopters of cgms you know for type 2s and in diabetes remission that was one of my talks at low carb breckenridge or whatever it was like five years ago like the very beginnings of cgms yeah for patients
0: see it's interesting matt because like a little, and this is a slight tangent from Zone Two training, but that's fine because this is just a conversation. Um, like a lot of, I see a lot of backlash against CGMs online for people who are otherwise insulin sensitive, and in my, you know, and I think so. I'll give you my perspective, and I'll be keen to hear your thoughts. Is that is that the first time? Like, if you don't know, then I think you've got a lot to learn just from slapping one on and seeing what happens regardless of body size regardless of training regime and and other health sort of lifestyle factors whereas and I know that there are people out there who would would agree and say yeah actually like despite the fact that you might seem healthy and be healthy you can learn a lot from how your body responds to to certain foods like because you cannot rely on something like the glycemic index to tell you you know what type of food might be a a a better source of carbohydrate than others. However, I also see on the flip side, there are people who are absolutely against the idea of CGM for anyone who isn't sort of medically diagnosed. what's your what's your take on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's such a ridiculous sentiment to say, well, I'm against I'm for I mean the world now unfortunately has has kind of become'm I'm for I'm for it or I'm against it, right? Like we've eliminated nuance and critical thinking. Okay, so is is are you against, okay, you know, some people want to step on a scale every day, some don't. You know, some people want to check their blood pressure every day, some don't. Some people want to track their sleep, you know, with some type of device, some don't. But it's a human right to be able to see what your blood sugar is. How, how can you be against that? You know, and I think anyone who's using one of those probably needs to have someone you know, a good quality health coach, you know, an RD, you know, someone like yourself who understands, like, why are you using it? What information are you getting? So so I can help you interpret that information. Okay, is this signal or is this noise? Is there something there? You know, so so it's called a straw man argument. So someone's saying, I don't think someone should use a CGM because I had one patient one time who put one on and developed an eating disorder. I mean, that's just a silly statement to say. I mean, people are developing eating disorders all the time, with or without CGMs. You know, so you can't blame the. Maybe, maybe that person had an eating disorder and put on a CGM. So, I mean, it's just now. uh, You know, you can go into any pharmacy. I mean, the more people are using glucometers now without diabetes, just to understand blood sugar, yeah, because they they they're self empowered, right? They they want to know what's going on yeah you know we did a small pilot study using cgm for new diabetes patients right and part of our, the title of the article was empowerment empowering patients to understand and so new diabetes patients no medications medication naive we put a cgm on them and really no fancy coaching we gave them a book that helped them just log a few things mm-hmm. right what's you figure out what the effect of sugar food you know whatever exercise is on your blood sugar and sort it out. And two thirds of the patients met the criteria for diabetes remission without medication in four months. Wow. You're like, wow, what if we did that to the world? I mean it's a pilot.
0: We didn't have health
1: coaches. We didn't nothing, no fancy apps, no nothing. Just put a CGM on them, let them see, geez, I eat bread, my sugar goes up. I don't eat bread, I go for a walk, my sugar goes down. I mean what what is not like and we want to catch diabetes before they're fully diabetic, right? Because they by the time people are told they have type two, you know, they probably have seventy percent beta cell failure. So if you can pick someone up, you know, pre-diabetes is diabetes. So if someone says, "Oh, it's just pre-diabetes," no, that's early diabetes. You know, and then there's pre-pre diabetes if we actually measure insulin levels. But yeah. no, I mean, I think you know, why would you not agree that if you're Someone who wants to know your blood sugar for a specific reason that seems reasonable go they should be over the counter i mean really they they sh- they should be i don 't see they they they're not doing harm I mean look at all the other stuff that's over the counter that put people into kidney failure right oh, they take geez. ibuprofen Jeez. you know and they yeah after running and and like there's so many things over the counter, literally Tylenol right aspirin right like you can kill yourself with this stuff, but I'm sorry to kind of rant there but but no, it I really is is so misplaced anyone who has that hardened opinion I, I wouldn't want to see them as a physician because clearly they don't have an open mind and it's called shared decision making so if you came to me Mickey, and said these are the reasons i want to use a cgm for two weeks four weeks you know i'm just i'm training for iron man i just want to see i'm trying to get stable blood sugar i'm trying to figure out you know how many carbs per hour like sure <laughs> you know what harm are you going to do by putting a little device on your arm that, you know, breaks the skin a little bit, but there's no there's no risk in the in the device at um, all.
0: And that's where I see utility for an athlete, actually, is less about what's going on during training, because I feel like you don't really get that much information if you're out there on a, you know, a ride. It's not going to tell you X number of grams of carbohydrate that you need to be sort of eating. So I see less of the application during training and more about that day to day, like how the energy is through the day, because Particularly if people are uh, listened to your story, Mark, and went, "Shit, that's me." You know, that's how I am. I'm hungry all of the time. Like using a CGM could be quite a, a good way to yeah, understand a, how to balance a tool it to help sort it out.
1: Right? Yeah. There could be multiple things. Let's look at your CGM. Oh wow, well, you're hungry when you're crashing. Right? <laughs> so let's okay, let's. Let's t- To not get hypoglycemia, we want to avoid hyperglycemia, right? Because yeah, exactly. the hypo follows the hyper. But most people think, oh, I'm hypo, I need more sugar. No, the reason you're hypo is because you did eat sugar. And, you're ins- and this happens after gastric bypass a lot. You know, They get this reactive hypoglycemia because they become really insulin sensitive in the way their body is actually kind of disposing of the carbohydrates. They get these massive, super low... Um, blood sugars where they just need to eat protein right the solution is not more sugar it's actually like you need you know fat protein almost no carbs like carnivorous type diet post-gastric bypass for reactive hypo
0: yeah that's interesting because that's um i see a lot of clients actually and they are they are exactly that like post-gastric bypass and their their sort of original diet prescribed is in fact a high protein um sort of um, and it's never sort of sold as a low carb diet but it's always sort of you know promoted as as a high protein diet yeah
1: so it's always it's like protein shakes with like 4 grams of carbs yeah. pre and post gastric bypass yeah
0: interesting interesting so mark um let's talk then about zone 2 training so you know obviously changing your diet is one way to change your metabolism but throughout through aerobic training we can essentially make some great inroads as well and so can we start by even sort of uh, but well first, what is zone, what are the zones, if you can sort of start there and then why it might matter. And I know we've sort of briefly touched on it, but I'd love to sort of talk yeah, about it from an athlete gosh. perspective, too. So I
1: think from a human and an athlete, and I think, you know, at, at the conference too, Mickey, it's like almost every talk somehow started to touch on mitochondria, right? Yeah. There's yes. nothing new under the sun. So to be a healthy human, brain, heart, muscles you want to have multiples of mitochondria. You want robust mitochondria. You want to build your mitochondria and you want your mitochondria to function. The more mitochondria you have, most likely the healthier you are and the longer you're you're going to live. And these have to be functional mitochondria. So the mitochondria are... Mostly in our what are called the the type one fibers, the slow twitch fibers, the red meat fibers, these are robust in mitochondria. your heart's loaded with mitochondria, your brain's loaded with mitochondria, but in the muscular system, uh they're going to be your slow twitch fibers, and that is really the base of fitness because when we exercise in a conversational pace, you're stimulating more mitochondrial growth so Generation of more mitochondria and generation of capillaries. So the capillaries are the roads per se, and the mitochondria are the energy factories. So the more we go out and we just walk or we jog or we cycle or we row or we dance or (laughs) cross country ski, whatever, hike, whatever it is, you are growing mitochondria and you're growing these capillaries, you know, the little roads. We have 60,000 miles of capillaries that feed these mitochondria. And zone two is, and the mitochondria love to burn fat, right? So, so that's at a baseline. So the mitochondria in the slow twitch fibers love to burn fat. That's the preferred fuel. So your heart loves to burn fat, right? You know, it we, we needs to beat. Say you haven't eaten for a week, your heart still needs to function. Your brain still needs to work. So the mitochondria love fat. They like ketone bodies. They can burn carbs. They can burn fat. But they, they, they love fat. And when we exercise at the slower pace, we are utilizing mostly fat oxidation. And as soon as you kind of cross a line, like, uh, you know, you're going out for a run, right? You're, you're kind of starting now to get a bit more winded. You're kind of shifting out of zone two into what is called uh, zone three, which is you're recruiting some of these more faster twitch fibers. And these are more glucose Burning fibers. So, if we need energy right away, you got to get up the hill, pass a a car. (laughs) You know, if you're a car, it's like the gas and the electric, right? You've got this gas tank, but you got this big electric battery. That's when you're shifting into this next gear. So, the bigger that first gear, which would be zone one, zone two, which is fat oxidation, conversational pace, the more you can actually go into that faster gear because that faster gear will use more glucose and the byproduct of glucose utilization is, is lactate, we would call it. So, it's a, so, lactate is a form of fuel. Now, if you don't have a robust mitochondrial system, that lactate is associated with a hydrogen ion. So, everyone probably has experienced where their, their muscles just kind of want to shut down, right? You sprint a quarter mile and we call it rig, yes. you know, rigor mortis, basically. <laughs> you get acidic. So it's not lactic acid per se, you know, it's it's you get an acidic environment. So if you're starting to use a lot of glucose and you can't buffer that lactate which is built with the glucose, you're gonna you're you're gonna be limited. You're gonna just basically shut down. But the bigger that mitochondrial machine is, the bigger those type one fibers are. So they call it the lactate shuttle. So it's like a little shuttle bus. So if you've built all of this endurance training, these uh, really robust slow twitch fibers. Then, when you need to inject the gas and you produce the lactate, it's actually shuttled back into the slow twitch fibers and can become fuel. But if you haven't built up those slow twitch fibers, it becomes acidic. And so, you re- and this goes back to, you know, back in your country, like Arthur Lydiard. So yes. this all goes phil mathetone so this all goes back arthur lidier didn't understand what george brooks did and inigo samalan and all the you know cpt transporters and all this stuff but but he knew that without the endurance training they couldn't do hard training so they would do in the off season just tons of endurance training and when they felt flat like when when he sensed that the athletes were just kind of flat like their fuse was kind of burnt He would just send them out to do easier running for you know three days, five days a week, and when he said, "When you feel like coming back to the track, come back to the track." So they, if they somehow let that part of their training go, they couldn't do the hard training. And you know, but we've learned about the physio. Frank Shorter, you know, talked about him in in my talk. He he understood the same thing. He was self-coached, and he knew the more he did the hard training, the more he needed to do the recovery training. Or else it wouldn't work. So so, you know, he ran not that any, you know, human beings listening to this podcast are gonna run a hundred miles a week. He was an Olympic champion. But so so he would, you know, he ran a hundred miles a week for like seventeen years of his career. And every weekend he would do a twenty mile, you know, just probably for him he didn't know what the zones were, but it was a conversational run with with other peers that he may have had or by himself. But he did that all year long. Yeah. Yes, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No,
0: sorry. No, like the way you, you're talking about Frank Shorten, it reminds me of this book and I bloody hell, I can't remember what it's called, but it's an amazing sort of like um encyclopedia of runners. And every chapter is devoted to a to uh to a runner and how they used to train. And and is it Zadapek? Is that the
1: Yes, he did, yeah. Emil Zadapek won the five ten in marathon in fifty-four. Okay, I no, knew 50, you would know. It would know. have been fifty six because okay. sixty was when Peter Snell, who was Lydiard's runner, yes, you know, came out and and won, and s- several of the New Zealanders won in nineteen sixty.
0: That's right. And so this guy, and I don't know if you've seen this, if you, I wish I could remember the name. I, you will know the book, and um, it has an entire chapter on his life and how he used to train and the races that he won, and and they also which always fascinated me was give you like a weekly schedule of his runs and he would run like 20 times 800 meters it's not even 20 it was 40 times 800 meters yeah, he in the did morning.
1: insane amounts of yes. like repeats and boots
0: and yeah yeah morning and night morning yeah. and night like I wonder where his zone two training was. It had to be in there somewhere. But, you know, like it's crazy the amount of running that all of those sort of um, runners used to do back in the day. I mean, people run like, you know, there are people who do excellent like heaps of miles and stuff now. But it always used to amaze me at how resilient these runners were back then.
1: Yeah, there were some some subsets of runners who could respond to really high intensity training like year in, year out. There are few and far between, though. That would actually be able to maintain that over multiple Olympiads. Um, but so people like uh so Zadapec, for example, if he was gonna go do i mean, no kidding, 40 times a quarter mile. Yeah. So he through his life, he had to have developed just a massive mitochondrial system. Yes. Because or else he would have been done at like the fourth one. So he goes and does a pretty intense four hundred meters, builds up lactate, but you know, this guy probably never drove a car when he was young. So probably his whole upbringing was work and labor. So so he was able to buffer that lactate. So he could take a one minute or two minute recovery and his lactate level, like if you were measuring that, which they didn't back then, his lactate level would probably be down close to a baseline because he right. just disposed of his lactate yes. so quick. That's why all these uh, kind of fancy people now Especially the triathlete side, they, you know, they stick their ear and they measure a lot of lactate because, you know, if their lactate hasn't gone down low enough, they're probably wasting their time trying to do another interval set because they're already toast
0: yeah, before yeah, going sure. into that
1: set. So you can get more scientific, but he was most likely just intuitive plus probably as tough as nails you know, growing yeah. up, you know, in yeah. post-war Czechoslovakia, you know, <laughs> there's probably something, the brain is always, I don't think any of us can put our, our ourselves into, you know, I've read a bit about Emil Zadopek, but, you know, these people had really hard lives, you know, hard labor. Yeah. yes,
0: and, and I wonder how much of that is genetic as well, you know, like, how much of our ability to build it resilient and a, of mitochondria is that a, is there a genetic component do we know Mark?
1: Well I think so there's um, David Epstein wrote a book called The Sports Gene and yes. he's a really good and brilliant writer. So let's just take two populations from Africa you know so you've got West Africans you know who migrated mostly to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. the best sprinters in the world or mm-hmm. none. right and there's a cultural side of that too. you'd have to read Epstein's book. So if you're in Jamaica, you want to be Usain Bolt right? So you want to be, he's the guy. Yeah. So you're the youth track club. So, so there's a culture of sprinting, but there's more, you know, genetically a West African is more muscular build, more type two fast twitch muscle fibers built for speed genetically. Then you go across Africa to East Africa, up to the Rift Valley at 9,000 feet you know, the Kalenjin, So in this one tribe, he talks about that in the book. So from this one small tribe in Central Africa, you know, East Africa, Kenya, there were like more sub-220 or sub-210 marathoners than like in one year, there were like 200 than had been in the United States Yeah, for like the last two decades. Yeah, it, you crazy. know, like we had like three in the last two decades. And here in one year in this little village in East Africa, they're like, 200 runners ran like a marathon under 210, you know, so, so if you look at a Colangians build versus a West African, you know, they're, they're totally different body types, you know, very uh, lean and long Achilles tendons. You know, and, and even looking at muscles like the gastroc and the soleus. So the gastroc is more fast-twitch muscle fiber. So if you look at a sprinter, their gastroc, that's the two heads in the back of the calf, you know, very well-developed, right? They, they look like bodybuilder types. And then the East African runners, it's like, they don't even have any calves. <laughs> 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 and they're like, where's their calf? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Because yeah. like the, the, the soleus, which is the deeper muscle, which is more part of the spring of the Achilles tendon, which is distance running, is a slow twitch muscle fiber. So they don't need a big gastroc because they're not sprinting. They're just springing. But maybe that's a, you know, read Epstein's book. But of course there's genetics too, you know, but but then epigenetics, you know, your your environment and your culture. Everyone in East Africa now wants to be Elliot Kipchoge. Yes. So the culture in East Africa is, I want to run I wanna win the Berlin Marathon or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. that is.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, you know, mitochondria is a bit of a as you said in the in the conference, it came up quite a bit. And I also now see it out there on sort of social media and it's certainly in that public sphere as well but I think that a lot of people who might be falling into the camp of not necessarily athlete but sort of that gen pop who are just unfit I don't know how much they would think about the way that exercise can improve mitochondria the way you know that they might might be well familiar with the Michael Moseleys of the world who are like you know take an ice bath improve your mitochondria like that sort of hacking your mitochondria these these sort of short sharp uh not it's not that they're not lifestyle but they're almost like quick fixes whereas what we're talking about is pretty simple and actually um possibly more we know so much more about how effective it is too.
1: Yeah, there's so many different nuances there so I think you know the the one paper that I have read and got uh, many maybe some other folks have read this on your podcast is there's a paper by george brooks who 30 years ago really had this lactate shuttle model and inigo samalan who who trains uh, tour de france rider so he's an exercise phys uh, professor at cu but showing the difference in what happens in the mitochondria between a metabolic syndrome patient and an elite athlete so when um so let's just take the uh the muscle cell, and the fat droplets in someone who has metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes. So there's all these fat, fat droplets in the muscle cell. Now, these fat droplets in the sick patient are dysfunctional. So, so they're ectopic fat. It's inflammatory fat. The mitochondria don't use them. They release a lot of inflammatory markers. So they can't really be used as fuel because the mitochondria are dysfunctional and the fat droplets are also dysfunctional is probably not the word just atypical they they're not physiologically optimal normal fat cells so they're going to create a whole inflammatory cascade so there's multiple arms multiple levels of dysfunction and that need to be fixed (laughs) to return to factory settings. So we want to compare factory settings would be, okay, what is the physiology of an elite athlete, right? They have the perfect mitochondria. They can eat carbohydrates, right? They can eat fat. They have perfect mitochondria. So the fat droplets in someone who's well and fit and athletic, these fat droplets, so we can use fat for fuel. Now the most readily utilizable source of fat is sitting right in our muscles. Then we have fat that's another part of our bodies that has to be transported through the serum with carried on albumin, little transporters, and get to the muscles for fuel. But these these local fat droplets in someone who's well can actually be used right away for fuel access, and it's great. It's highly efficient, much more uh, ATP, which is the currency of energy production. So you take a fat molecule. So say it's you've got a medium chain triglyceride. You know, so you've got sixteen to eighteen carbons versus You know, a a glucose molecule, a six carbon. So you get a lot more energy, you get a lot more currency from the fat. So right away the fat is not healthy in in a metabolic patient. And the other thing that happens right away in someone who has diabetes metabolic syndrome is when they go exercise, so when lactate goes up, so when our mitochondria don't work, as we talked about before, Mickey, so when our mitochondria are dysfunctional, we're burning sugar and the mitochondria don't work, so we're producing lactate, which is associated with an acid, and uh, that lactate level goes up because we can't clear it. The Mm. shuttle's not there. The type 1 fibers aren't there, so we just build up lactate. So as soon as that lactate goes up, it shuts off fat oxidation. So the, the sick patient gets off the couch, and their lactate goes up right away. So it's like, it's a paradox. So like, how can, and then they're told by, you know, well, they just read an article in the New York times that they should do seven minutes of high intensity and it's, and it's a way for them to get fit, but it's like, no, it would crush them. Maybe if you're already fit, you could do that. But if you're not fit, like you're just going to, it's going to be a miserable experience because as soon as the, and you want to burn fat for fuel. So a healthy human whether you want to lose weight or not, needs to be able to use fat for fuel. That's just a healthy way to live. It's called metabolic flexibility. So to train that, at least in my opinion, I guess, you know, in 20 years, maybe we'll know more. You know, you go out for a jog and it feels pretty good, right? (laughs) You're like, I'm happy. My brain's happy. You know, you're getting positive hormones because your mitochondria work. But, oh, I'm going to tell my diabetes patient to go run, jog. It sucks for them yeah. <laughs> right out the door, right? 100%. Like, it's like 100%. Like this sucks. But you're like, well, you're just going slow. You know, just suck it up, buttercup, go a little more. <laughs> but no, so I think we need to tell those people to slow way down.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right.
1: But fix the diet, you know, because the diet's going to help with their whole fat adaptation, ectopic fat. So they need to fix the diet. But go walk, like just go for a walk or an easy swim, Uh, you know, like a gentle bike ride, right? Like not, you know, head down, right? Just get the cruiser bike, right? Yeah, yeah. Just get off of your Strava or whatever the heck it is. Just (laughs) go conversational pace.
0: Yeah. Because as soon
1: as they're breathing heavy. (sighs)
0: Stop.
1: Yeah, because then they're building up lactate.
0: Yeah. So, Mike, when you were talking about this in your talk at Low Carb Denver, the people that I had in my head weren't necessarily the people who had always been inactive. In fact, the people I was thinking about were former athletes. And these are the people who I see and are mates with, you know, who have done Ironman once or know used to be a a runner, and now they're not. Um, When I say now they're not, what I mean is now they're, you know, either they've got a family now, they've got more job responsibilities, they want to train, but they don't do it on a regular basis. So what they do is they, once or twice a fortnight, jump on Zwift, and they do a Zwift race, and then they're so buggered from it and they don't, aren't able to recover that they then do nothing for the next four or five days and then the next thing they try and do is the Zwift race again and I see it and I think my goodness the problem is is that you are constant that you are identifying with the athlete you once were and it's not that they're not an athlete but they're just at the well they're no longer that Competing regularly, active individual that they used to be, and they're almost doing themselves a disservice because they haven't had that factory reset that you were talking about, and they need it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you use the same terminology, Mickey, in New Zealand. That would they're Type A. Ah,
0: right? they're yes. Type, the
1: Type A people, right? Yes, so, they
0: are.
1: Yeah, and I think if you're coaching a Type A person, like the people that are. Like, you could take athletes, and people are either horses or mules, and it's fine. You could be one or the other. You just have to understand who you are. You know, the people that are like the Ironman triathletes, college athletes, they're horses, right? That's why they're doing that stuff, and they will run till they break. And then the mule, as soon as they get a little uncomfortable, they slow down. So so they they're fine, you You don't need to, really <laughs> don't to give need to them any being. advice at all. They're good to go. They're going to live long. Their mitochondria are fine. They're not going to win the Boston Marathon and they're not going to finish an Ironman, but they could care less. They yeah. they're, they're just fine. Yeah. They're healthy humans. So it's the people that really do have that like data, you know, and I think all these I'm not on Strava. I don't track anything, you know, because I think it just puts this, you know, you, you don't need that. But I think, you know, if you're advising them, you have to give them permission to slow down and convince them that that's important. You're going to have to do that. I mean, Phil Maffetone with Mark Allen, you know, back in the 80s, you know, he got us, you know, and he was like Yoda, right? So goes and seeks his advice, you know, Mark, you got to slow down. And, you know, he's like Yoda. So Mark, didn't challenge him. He's like, you listen to the logic about it and said, okay, I'm going to go do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it right? was great. It's like the hero's he doing, journey, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: What you're doing and you, you go seek, you know, seek yeah. the, the wisdom and then you go back away and, uh, and then you come back and, and you've just discovered something Yeah, and you don't start, chal- but that's what really those folks need to do. And there's so many people I think that have done it, you know, they were broken and then whether they're, you know, age groupers are high level, right? They'll go kind of do a Maffetone-style block for six months, you know, slow down, eat better, eat clean, build their mitochondria, whether it's heart rate training, something to act as a governor to make them not go faster. The type A's need a governor, you know, they need something to beep and yell at them to slow down, you know, uh, or else they won't.
0: I agree But then, with you. then in
1: six months, they would be able to but it takes time you know and it's priorities you know if people have three kids a job and they want to you know complete the iron man at an age group record it's you know it's not going to fit i mean someone explained this to me one time i heard it on a in a talk like you've got you know you've got 10 cards that's you know you got to play those 10 cards no more no less right so you've got to you know you've got your family you've got your job you got to recover and you got to exercise and maybe you've got some recreation or other things so so you can't make cards up well i want to have play five for exercise and three for recovery but i got a job and i need to sleep <laughs> and i want to spend some time with my family like no no you're just played 15 cards so i think at at each stage in life you have to be a professional triathlete is is playing like five in their training Three in recovery, two for sleep. They have nothing else going on in their life.
0: Totally, but it's their job as totally. well. Totally, no so job, no yeah. family, yeah, no yeah. nothing. So and that's not that's you good. or me
1: or anyone listening to your show.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And you know, Mark, I feel like I, I feel like there's a there's a just a. Um, almost a mental block for these people that that we were describing in that they feel like they'll get more bang from their buck if because they do it less often, they should go harder. Whereas because of the state that they're in, it's that they need to change the outcome goal, I think, a little bit because that's what they're sort of attached to. Whereas sort of building up that um, mitochondrial resiliency, making those diet changes, changing the way that they move, ultimately will get them to their goal in a much healthier state, and they won't get a heart attack and die.
1: Yeah, even Lineard, you know, back in the day, he called his, is your training Giza or Pisa, right? So Pisa is the leaning tower, you know, so if you're doing a lot of high intense, so that at the top is the high intensity, you know, so ultimately you're going to break and it's, it's going to fall over. But Giza is the pyramid, right? Oh, not yes. the food pyramid, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> the pyramid, right? So that the, the base of the pyramid really is your health. If you're not healthy, you're going to break no matter what your training is, but it's all that zone one, zone two endurance training, you know, and then you've got maybe a little zone three. And if you choose, you know, if you're competitive, throw in you know, some specificity. So timing and specificity is really important. You know, like your, your countryman, Nick Willis, you know, I think he's run a sub four for more consecutive years than anybody. So he'd be interesting. Like, what, what does he do in the office? Because that's pretty phenomenal. I think he's had over 20 years of sub four. I minute think miles. so.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Uh, so he's, again, like he's been at the top of his game for a long, long time. So whatever he's doing is smart, you yeah, know, yeah. like the people who, you know, at the top of their game, you know, or Bernard Lagat was probably similar to uh, Nick Willis. So he was, you know, U- he was Kenya, then US, but he was still running, you know, sub fours in like his mid forties. But, you know, when he was in his teens, he's running like sub fours, but he would take a month off, like completely off D train, you know, and a lot of just. You know, he knew when his season was, you know, a lot of early endurance training, you know, he ran to school as a kid, like, like he had that endurance training already dialed in even before they lined him up for a race. So I think a lot of what's happening now, you know, in culture, which is going to be more difficult in America to develop these athletes, is, is we don't live like we did, in, you know, maybe in New Zealand, 40 years ago, people walked or ran to school. Kenya they still do that here like there's like zero physical activity and then they want to join the high school team but I think by that point you know that critical development you know to become a world champion is maybe that that ship has sailed already
0: yeah that's interesting isn't it because you I mean it's no different here in New Zealand it's you know seldom do kids walk to school I mean of course there are kids that will walk to school but you know the prevailing thing is being you know um, driven to school because parents are busy it's convenient. And, and I'm certainly not, um, uh, I'm not dismissing that, you know, I understand the realities of actual real life. But then, of course, uh ed is taken out of the curriculum because there's no room for it, because we need to do all of these other things. And it's just, I, I do worry about the youth of today.
1: Yeah, I think we all do. You know, Lorraine Muller and Rod Dixon, I got to hang out with them in New Zealand and, you know, both, you know, Olympic champions and They just described their childhood compared to now. You know, they didn't even wear shoes to school and they would be running all the time in school, you know, games and recess, you know, so it was just a different, different world.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: um, Now. So if you're a parent listening to this, (laughs) you know, just if your kid can if it's you know we have that boogeyman thing oh we're afraid someone's going to kidnap our kid or something but let your kid walk to school yeah yeah if possible
0: yeah totally mark and so obviously with regards to um you know i said i want to talk to you about zone two essentially we've talked about mitochondria and mitochondrial health and so Bit of a tangent, but I did mention things like ice bath or sauna. Like, what what's your understanding of the utility of these to help build mitochondrial resiliency, Mark? I mean, it's okay if you're like, I actually haven't really looked at that, but I'm just keen to hear what you know.
1: Yeah, you know, I haven't dug into the literature specifically about um, what that does to mitochondria, but I don't. I think. I mean, I think just knowing how physiology works. Sure, if you go for a long jog, hike, bike ride you know, you've added that stimulus and you like to soak in a hot tub or an ice bath after that, just to relax, that's probably good. But I can't imagine how not exercising a muscle can lead to any mitochondrial you know, <laughs> growth. I, I I think, yeah, I think it'd be a very hard thing to really demonstrate. But if it helps you recover from your activity, right, so you can go out and get a little bit sore, you know. go whether it's a sauna or hot tub or ice bath, there's really like no specific best way. It's like whatever you feel good recovery is for you. What recovery is recovery? So it's so you can go out and do something again. So stress plus rest yeah. equals growth.
0: Yeah. For stress sure. without
1: rest you know, then then you just overtrain.
0: Yeah, nice, and I know that um, in the-
1: I have a little hot tub, it feels great. Yeah, you know? for
0: sure, I know. Yeah, I
1: don't know what it's doing in my mitochondria, but it feels
0: good, right? <laughs> but it's really good so, for your recovery. Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: people have the same thing with saunas, like up in the you know, the Scandinavian countries, yes. you know, so it probably does something for your mind. Which is powerful too. Just relaxes you. You can't be on your cell phone if you're sitting in the hot tub.
0: That's true. Or at least and, you shouldn't be. And I know, um, you know, in that cold water thermogenesis, they, you know, people talk about brown fat and that mitochondrial-rich sort of fat, and that you can generate more brown fat from being. Yeah, in- maybe
1: so. Maybe there is a little bit with with brown fat regenerates with it. Yeah. You know, most people don't want to be like freezing cold.
0: No, <laughs> so, no, no yeah, I so and, and,
1: I'm skinny, so like, no. I'll, yeah, yeah, you're like,
0: happy without. Dial and, my
1: heat down at night, not, not <laughs> jump in the freaking cold bath.
0: <laughs> and you're in West Virginia. I mean, that, I feel like that would be quite cold, actually, in, in general. But I also wonder how, you know, despite the fact, yes, of course you can generate more brown fat, I do. I always wonder with things like this, what's the clinical how meaningful is it clinically like yes, yes in a study they may show a regeneration or a generation of brown fat but what you know what is the outcome of that in real life like? Because there's that difference between what they find is significant statistically in a study versus what's actually meaningful. So I always, I do wonder about that.
1: Yeah, and I think genetically. So if mm. you're a Northern Tier Eskimo, you have a lot of brown fat genetically, and brown fa- brown meaning loaded with mitochondria. It's like red meat versus white meat. So so that's what we mean by brown fat. That is healthy fat. So that is maintaining your metabolism, maintaining your heat. And the brown fat actually isn't kind of around our like wiggly jiggly stuff. It's kind of mostly like truncal, kind of like upper, like upper neck. I'd have to look at a map like where this brown fat is. But a lot of that is is genetically determined. If you were born in an equatorial part of the world, you, you don't have as much brown fat. You know, it would not be an evolutionary adaptation to help help you live. But you know, there's you know, you can read things and there's theories like you 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 know, you turn the heat down at night. Like if you live in like any part of the world, like I am, you know, probably you know, you should not just be in this euthermic environment twelve months a year. And you know, let's just set set the you know what is seventy degrees in in your terms, like it'd be like a you know eighteen degrees yes. or something. But just set that homeostasis all the time. You know, I think the body needs just like training. The body just needs variability you know That just we probably shouldn't need science for that right like we had seasons you know go out and run in the warm weather a bit in the summer right you become more adapted to warm weather exercise you know we develop the ability to sweat more we conserve the sodium in our sweat right so we have all of these magical adaptations by exercising in the heat that allow us to exercise in the heat and then in the winter time you know i, I keep my house at 66 You know it's not horribly freezing but it's cold but that helps me like i sleep like the dead at 66 and then when i have to go out and run and it's 18 degrees fahrenheit which negative something (laughs) then i'm fine right i'm not like you know going from this sauna you know at six in the morning out into freezing cold like the body makes the the shift a little easier
0: I've got to say mark i was I was not overly disappointed that I wasn't able to run when I was over in Denver because it was so cold. How was cold I, those few days I know <laughs> how I did really miss cold. you know it would have been a great opportunity. To have a run with you, though, you know, go out and like I would have had I had anticip had I had been running at the time, I certainly would have packed my running gear and anticipated it being super cold because we just don't really get temperatures like that here in New Zealand. Like I've never been in minus 10 to 4 degrees Celsius. Before. And you were
1: 18 time zones away, too. So it would have been it's hard sometimes when you do like your kind of trip.
0: Oh, I know. Like You're
1: just trying to adjust to day and night. and.
0: Yeah, oh, to wow, to girl, be fair, I think exercise. I... To exercise. I know, and I've just actually... Because <laughs> yeah, it's the
1: middle of the night. Like, literally, <laughs> yeah. you're awake. Is, your brain is like, this is the middle of the night.
0: It's funny, actually. So I was in the gym at 4 a.m., Denver time, um, which was twelve a.m. New Zealand time, and then I looked and I saw Marty Kendall. Who, Marty Kendall. yeah, he was in there as well. <laughs> Glenn and Finkel like, oh, and the South like.
1: Africans, and you're like,
0: oh, <laughs> yeah, just can't sleep. <laughs> yeah, um, so Mark, um, in terms the because you know your knowledge base for obviously running history, which I just bloody loved in your talk so if anyone is interested in this topic they should absolutely purchase those low-carb Denver um sort of virtual streaming tickets which are still available people can still jump on purchase them and and see your talk in amongst a whole bunch of others which are uh similar in terms of how they talk about mitochondria but they just are looking at it from you know different health and and well-being sort of perspectives um so you know, I, I really loved your talk. And like, is mitochondria and zone two is this something that you're super interested in? You always do a deep dive in the in the literature about. Or what other things are you sort of looking at and interested in right now?
1: Yeah, so I'm, my career is a doctor, so yeah. I'm interested in diabetes remission and uh, obesity, medical obesity, because that's such a, a massive problem around the world. So you know, applying lifestyle measures to make these conditions go away, not just manage them with more pharma, because these are essentially dietary and lifestyle conditions. You know, there's a lot of talk, you know, I go to the conferences on low carb, low carb is a powerful hammer for metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes. But exercise, I think is, is like the magic pill. So like, there's no downside, there's no controversy. So like, if we can become a little more exercise focused, and I, I had like two slides on it, you're trying to do a a full day seminar in 30 minutes, literally. Yeah, I know. But um, so when we exercise, there's this magic glucose transporter that mm-hmm. comes to the surface of the cell. So it's called a GLUT4 transporter. So when we eat some carbohydrate, a well person, you know, can eat carbohydrates, their glucose goes up. So your pancreas secretes insulin, which connects to this insulin receptor, which brings this little transporter, and the glucose goes from your serum into the cell and you've got energy, all works wonderful. But in the diabetic, that system's broken, they're insulin resistant. But when you exercise, it's like the magic back door. So these GLUT4 transporters come to the surface of the cell and it's about a 50X increase. So like you go exercise, you can increase your glucose disposal. Yeah. You know, without forget about the drugs or any of the other debates, like just extra. And we we showed this in our pilot study With the glucose monitors, we told our patients, go figure out what's the effect of exercise. Oh my gosh, I go for a walk and my sugar goes down. It's like, whoa, there's no downside to that. That's great. Go for a walk. You could shoot insulin, store it, or you could go for a walk. So that's like the CGMs, you know? These people didn't have CGMs. They wouldn't have had a clue. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's fascinating. I can dispose of glucose just not a run, not a CrossFit workout, nothing high intense, just by going for a walk. You know, so go for a walk after your meals.
0: And there's so good research I think that's with that powerful. too, as well. Like, oh gosh, yeah, 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 the
1: physiology is there, the mechanisms are there, and the yeah. research is there. Yeah, but it's no one's making money off of this. So, no. like, why is that that not like on every? Med page today
0: it headline. Be. Wow, if yeah. you walk yeah.
1: your sugar goes down without insulin.
0: Yeah. And I gotta say as well, like I don't know how you feel about this, because I can't recall talking to you about it. But you know, I um um over the last three years with the pandemic and shutting down the gyms and and um the donuts that got people uh encouraged free people to free donuts if you get a <laughs> getting <laughs> get vaccine shot, and, and whatnot. And I'm not and I'm oh just God. thinking that there was never a focus on metabolic health. And if anything, it was almost, well, not only was it ignored, it was almost like the opposite of of the type of advice that that we should be giving people because, you know, I've heard people talk about it, yeah, we had a pandemic and, you know, people are saying we're still in the pandemic or whatever, but what about the obesity epidemic? what is that, at what point does that sort of, the...
1: Yeah, I wrote a blog, which we published on our, WVU, West Virginia University, in April 2020, it was called, Is It Time to Quarantine Junk Food? And at that time, you know, it was like a six-page blog. I could probably find it, you know, all the mechanisms, like this is the time you know, to, to look at this, right? Yeah. And then Nina Teicholtz, who you met also, yes. she and I uh, put together an article. It took nine months to get it published.
0: Crazy. It was just
1: like a two-pager, is it time to lock down sugar? Okay. Like the amount of pushback we got just to get that published. And that, so that, that got published in maybe October, 2020, something like that. So really early in the pandemic, but like why was, and there like only a few articles out of the thousands of COVID articles that exist. Like, how many were published with an action plan, right? Not just, oh, wow, all these people with these comorbidities get sicker. No, this was the action plan, right? The title, Is It Time to Quarantine Junk Food? Is It Time to Lock Down Sugar? And I, we can, I can send you the link to
0: yep. Nina yeah, and article yeah. and
1: share it. But no, it was just indeed sad. Um yeah, I had patients in the hospital with COVID. They had mm. their glucose monitors on. They're texting me, and they'd be like, "Doc, they they're fe- they're feeding me like pasta and stuff. My sugar's four hundred. They're putting me on steroids. Oh, you know, crazy. the cytokine storm. You know, and they I, and they are like they're like locked in. They no one can bring them food, and they're literally feeding these patients yeah stuff that's going to kill them. Right? They're they're like the only thing you can control is the food right you can't control the cytokine storm but they were still feeding them no you have to have this i mean my patients were smarter sad to say than many of the doctors because they had glucose monitors on
0: yeah interesting and
1: you're just like it's insane i had to call the hospital a couple times to say look can you not give this person this and you had to actually like getting people's you know get in their face a little bit yeah. say look he has a glucose monitor on and yeah. you're feeding him spaghetti. Why don't you just feed him eggs and salad okay. like he wants?
0: Yeah, yeah. You and know, and were they responsive human right. to that, Mark?
1: It, it was kind of weird. They they kind of did. But like, why should I have to call yeah. and argue yeah,
0: yeah. to give yeah. them
1: something that's not going to kill them? It's like, yeah, yeah. He shouldn't. I mean, then there's millions of patients around the world that that's happening to, you know, who don't have someone calling, who don't have glucose monitors. They're just along for the ride. So we could have like another whole show on that. No, <laughs> I totally,
0: I totally it's, it's, appreciate it's, that whole idea of factory indeed, reset. I, I feel is, is something that a lot of people will probably need even more so post the last the last few yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Are, just,
1: you, are and you It's familiar? a slow reset. Yeah. You know, so so you can't force the reset to fac- factory conditions like your computer. No. You like could just turn it off, Control Alt Delete, and it all goes back. It takes for as long as it took you to get to where you are in this in the state of health that's suboptimal, it's going to take time to, to get back, but that's okay. You know, Zero you urgency,
0: right? This is what I say to people all of the time. Like you don't, like there's no time bound to this. Every day that you put into practice these yeah. behaviors get is healthier. another mm-hmm. day closer to where you want to be.
1: Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 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 If you have a bad day, just get back on board. Exactly, next day Mark. it's all good.
0: Exactly. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for your time this evening. Cause it's just gone nine at, uh, WV time, and I imagine will be well past your bedtime. Um, Can you just um, briefly remind us where people can find you? I don't think you're that active on Instagram, to be honest, because you didn't retweet any of my tweets.
1: (laughs) No, I'm not (laughs) on on Twitter or Instagram. Someone actually hacked me on, a friend of mine said, is this you? So someone actually hijacked um, my my identity on instagram was selling <laughs> nutrition supplements which is actually oh been terrifying you know that yes. someone was trying to make money and and so it's like oh this stuff's got but um yeah so um i have a little website called dr mark's desk which links to i have a shoe store <laughs> that sells yes. minimal shoes and i direct running races so if you're out here you can come do our trail races
0: well, you 100% they're a lot do of fun that awesome um
1: and blog a little bit on on running but i actually have a dropbox folder for all of this low carb athletic zone two stuff so if you and we could put in your show notes tinyurl.com forward slash low carb athletics
0: okay and I'm i have yet. like
1: yeah i'll send it to you we have like a like the long version of all my slides they're all fine to share and as well as like maybe 40 or 50 articles on oh, all this amazing. stuff so if you're a nerd about like like exercise science you know there the literature the primary literature with articles going back to you know the 40s and 50s about all this stuff so so that's a good place to go
0: that's amazing that. mark
1: any of the work by phil maffetone so like i didn't make any of this stuff up you know i think people are discovering the science of what all these coaches and athletes knew. Arthur Lydiard, you know what he knew, there's nothing new under the sun, like what he knew in 1960.
0: Yeah.
1: You know as he was training cardiac patients, right? That's that's how he got to start was yeah. teaching cardiac patients to jog and yeah. jog slow. Yeah. Walk first. Yeah. And then ultimately some of these heart patients ran marathons, you know, yeah. but they they started with, you know, their first goal was can you jog in 20 weeks you should be able to jog 30 minutes. Yeah. That was the cardiac program, not in two weeks. It was yeah. 20, 24 weeks, something like that.
0: Yeah, crazy. So that's
1: like most people now don't have the patience. Like 24 weeks? That's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. That's like, I want to be better tomorrow. But no, no, that's, that that's takes what, what he, it takes. That's what,
0: it would, what, what he would say. Yeah, it was
1: walk around, walk around, a little more jogging. Yeah. You know, and ultimately, you're jogging the whole thing, but over the course of time.
0: Yeah, Mark. Yeah, all
1: old school stuff.
0: Yeah, totally. And as and is often the case, like practice will almost always come before Research. You know, I feel like sometimes the practice of it makes people curious and then they research it to sort of see what's going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What athletes have done, Steven Seiler, for the history of time, you know, for the history of time, 80 20, 90 10, right? 80 to 90% of people's training are in this technically zone one, zone two, whether no matter what sport they're in, in an endurance sport.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So why, if that works, now we have to figure out scientifically, why is that true?
0: Yeah, yeah. They
1: all just do it, right? They know that this is what they need to do. And so so that's our job is to, and then transfer that to the patients who are not elite athletes. Okay, how do we adjust these principles for the sick patient?
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's,
1: I think, the next frontier is we're starting to understand a little more what's happening in the sick patient that's different.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Mark, you're so generous with your knowledge and your time. Well,
1: your show is amazing. I love your show and you've interviewed so many awesome people. So it's a privilege to to be on again. So, amazing. Well yeah.
0: you are one of those awesome oh, people. people. So I and everyone is so generous with wanting to share information. So thank you so much.
1: All right. Well have a great day, afternoon, and I'll yeah. get a shower and get some rest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See you, Mark.
1: Sweaty exercise clothes on. Nice. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye bye.
0: Alrighty, i think that you guys would have really enjoyed that conversation and as i said uh, we've got links to all of the things that mark and i discuss in the show notes including a link to his previous podcast interview with me if you missed it the first time around next week on the podcast i'm excited to bring to you the discussion that i have with women's health advocate amber Shaw. it's a good one she keeps it very real Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up to the waitlist for Monday's Matter that is happening in May, not too far away. Book a one-on-one call with me if that's what you require, or sign up to my recipe portal or one of my meal plans. All right, team, you have a great week. See ya.